Yeah, it was a valiant effort. It was very good. <laughs> it's funny, when you're prepping, you don't kind of... You kind of skip over those names, don't you? It, it's like... But when you actually have to say them out loud, it's a bit more tricky. A bit more of a challenge. So... Nehemiah 8. Um, yes. So we're going to be focusing on, that, on the passage that we, um, we just heard, valiantly read. And, um, but before we look at the passage, I just want to give you a little bit of context, um, because it does kind of come out of the blue unless you've been studying Nehemiah. So um, Nebuchadnezzar, now we've all heard of Nebuchadnezzar, hopefully. Um, he'd been coming to Israel and deporting people. He'd be, they were a pretty much defeated bunch. He'd been deporting people, um, just taking people away. And there was a few, uh, a few that remained. Um, and uh, he comes eventually in 587 BC, he comes and completely flattens Jerusalem and the temple and everything. Uh, he, he just... And he takes the few remaining um, Judeans into, into exile. And then 538 um, BC, about 50 years later, the Medes and the Persians invade Babylon and a new King Cyrus, um, who had been predicted in the Old Testament, comes uh, and allows the Jews to return home. Um, so there they go, off red line off into uh, Babylon and, uh, and then they're allowed to return home. So they go back to Jerusalem and um, the, the, um, the, <laughs> the temple, and he even gives them back the temple treasures to take with them. Um, this King Cyrus was a, was a really, um, you know, God had obviously worked uh, in him to 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 do to do this, and actually he was allowing a lot of people to return to their homes and kind of restart their religions, um, and so um, the the about forty two thousand Jews had returned uh, home and and rebuilt the temple with God's encouragement through. Haggai. So if you look in the Old Testament, you've got Haggai and Zechariah, and they were being uh, prophets that were encouraging God's people at that time. Um, and in, uh, in, in 458, remember we're counting backwards because it's BC, it's a bit confusing. Um, 458 BC, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, and through him, God conducts a spiritual reformation really, uh, and sorts out the Jewish line again. Uh, and, uh, and then in 445, 13 years later, Nehemiah comes, and this is, this is where we're at. Nehemiah comes back, he arrives, and he is a man on a mission. Uh, if you wanted a great organiser, a clear thinker, and a godly man, he's your guy. Um, he sets about surveying, organising, dealing uh, with opposition and discouragements. And uh, in verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 6, uh, it writes, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Eluil, which is a month, um, in 52 days. 
when all the enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So then everybody settled back in their towns. The kind of the work has, has pretty much finished and, um, and now we turn to our passage. Um, but will they come back for this meeting? They've organized a meeting. It's all very well organizing a meeting, but will they come back? Will the people come back? Um, I, I well remember once, um, it, was, it was quite a while ago, we were involved in a church plant in Reading, and we'd organized a kids' club uh, for the Friday. Uh, we'd advertised it, we'd prayed about it, we'd had many meetings organizing it, uh, but I remember getting to the church um, that evening after work. Uh, I, get, I got there, I left work early, got there really early, and I remember kneeling in the back room in this empty church, um, a lot like this one, it wasn't a big church, but it, it was kneeling in the back room, and I just, I, I remember just saying to God, if it brings you more glory to make a fool out of us, that we have nobody come, uh, then, then you do that. You go ahead and do that because I'm your servant. But if you want to reach out to this community, then send them in, Lord. Send them in. Uh, we had 38 children that first night uh, arrived off the estate. Uh, and, the, and the kids club grew until we had about 50 coming on a fairly regular basis. We had to have, uh, not bouncers, but whatever you call people who, who come in and sort out uh, people who are being a bit disruptive. But it was great, it was great. Um, will they come? Will they come? So let's just return to the water gate here in the city of Jerusalem and the murky shadows of the pre-dawn light. A mass of people are gathering in the square. It wasn't just the builders. They brought their families. They brought their wives and the children who were old enough to understand. The families were there and there was a restlessness, an eager anticipation. A hunger for God to speak. A craning of the neck, a straining of the ears. Notice what the people asked Ezra to do. They asked Ezra, bring us the book. Bring us the book, they say. Whilst the event had been organized, the hunger for God's word came from the people. Um, whilst the physical temple had been built and the wall surrounding the holy city had been put in place, the people knew that their greatest need was for God himself. <coughs> the people were ready. The, the unity 
of God's people was almost palpable. It says they came as kind of one man. Like iron filings being drawn to a magnet, they were pointing in the same direction. This mysterious force, this God force, this Holy Spirit was assembling these people and they were ready. They were ready to hear God speak. They weren't there for entertainment. They weren't there because they'd heard that the preacher was particularly good that morning. They weren't, that wouldn't have been the case here anyway, but they wouldn't, they weren't here for anything else other than to hear God speak. I wonder if we have that same hunger for God and for his word. Or has the desire waned a bit? God is saying to you this morning, come back to me. Open the book for yourself. Allow me to speak. Come with a sense of expectancy. and Listen attentively as they did. Ask God to make you hungry for him. So there's Ezra. Uh, Ezra climbs to this wooden platform. You can just imagine it. There's this sea of people. Uh, Ezra climbs to the wooden platform. And as he, he, he opens the book and everyone can see that these aren't Ezra's words. These are God's words. He opens the book and as a sign of respect, the people rise to their feet. Stay seated. As a sign of respect, the people rise to their feet and they expect to hear God's word. And Ezra praises the Lord and the people respond with, Amen, Amen. You can just imagine it. They worship the Lord and then they they put their faces to the ground in humility and they listened attentively for the next five hours. <laughs> Probably Ezra read a section and then the Levites would, would translate it and go out and uh, uh, help the people to understand um, what keeping God's law meant in practice. Uh, and we read in verse 8 that the Levites made it clear to the people. They were going out and, and making it clear to the people so that people really understood God's word. That it wasn't just words on a page, but it actually meant something. They were applying it to their lives. But then, one by one, the people begin to weep. As God's word was being read, a realization of God's holiness was settling upon the people. As it began to dawn on them the foolishness and the senselessness and the shamefulness of their own and their forefathers' disobedience, it began to become clear to them that what was being read was showing them God's holiness. And they were seeing themselves in the light of that. Remember on the day of Pentecost when the people again gathered in Jerusalem. When the word of God was being explained to them by Peter. 
And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said uh, to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The Lord, in a very real sense, before anyone can experience the joy of the Lord, we need to come to a realization of our own helplessness and dependence upon him. I remember John Lennox once saying to me that there's rarely growth without tears, as I sobbed for my sin. So there came repentance before joy. I think one of the most moving uh, prayers of repentance that you can uh, have a look at when you go home is in Ezra chapter 9. Uh, verses 6 to ver- uh, chapter 10, verse 1, Ezra chapter 9. It's worth reading uh, that and, and seeing the heart of repentance. And if we're left in our sin, if there is no hope and all we have is God's holiness and our sinfulness, we're right to weep, aren't we? We're right to weep. If we are left with no hope, then weeping is what we should do. And if, if it is just us, if it is just ourselves that we're left with, and only God's judgment ahead of us, then yes, weeping is where we should stay. Nehemiah and Ezra intervene here uh, to change the focus while grief looks back Gladness, gladness looks forward. Grief and sorrow for the sin in our lives, yes, but there is a real and lasting joy in the forgiveness of, uh, and mercy of God. Um, there are some who constantly seem to be in the depths of conviction of sin. Their prayers are always somber and full of regret. Um, But is that really trusting God? Is that really trusting God? There is a time for confession, a time for getting ourselves right before God, a time for humbling proud hearts. And this must come, but we're not to stay there with our faces to the ground. We need to look up. There's a wonderful um, Lauren Daigle uh, song that's out at the moment called Look Up Child and um, it talks about this looking up um, looking up there was a story told of a a little girl in the bath uh, and her mother was washing her hair and she says uh, if you will just keep looking at me it won't go in your eyes. The shampoo won't go in your eyes. But of course, she buckles at the last minute, puts her head down, and it all goes into her eyes. But there's a lesson there. We need to keep our focus on Jesus. We need to look up. And it's often against the darkest clouds of our sin that we see and rejoice more at the sunshine of God's mercy. When we realize that we're undone, when we realize our hopelessness and helplessness, 
when we cease to stand proud but come with our, on our knees and with our heads bowed in repentance. It's then, it's then that we see God reaching down with two merciful hands saying, my son, my daughter, the price is paid. Look up, look up. Your sins, they're no longer before me. It's finished. Come, let's celebrate together. Come, sit at my table, at my feast. Uh, I had a thought, I don't know whether it was from the Lord or or what it was, but I had a thought a little while ago. Imagine myself going to into into heaven and um, I could hear the words the beloved of the Lord has arrived and I thought what that can't possibly be me so I spoke to the angel this is in my imagination spoke to the angel and I said Surely there's a back way, a side entrance, that I'm to come in. He said, no, you are the beloved of the Lord and you've come home. God invites us in his mercy to come and sit at his table. When we realise the depths of our sin, the joy of sitting at that table is immense. Do we say, no, Lord, I'd rather sit in my misery for a bit longer? No, we don't. We run to the table. And then he says, the grief is turned to joy, and the joy is very great. It says the joy was very great. We kind of read the words, their joy was very great. But we kind of, I don't know, um, it's a kind of a, yes, this is great. You know, they're really enjoying themselves. They're absolutely loving the fact that this is a holy day, that God has fit them for heaven, that they are, that they are in God's presence Even though he's a holy God, he's invited them into his presence to share this holy day, this celebration with them. Their joy was very great. Um, And and again, in verse 17, it says it it twice, their joy is very great. Friends, we're called, yes, to be humble before God, but we're also called to rejoice in him, to enjoy God, to really enjoy God. Philippians 4.4 4 says, it, this sermon wouldn't be complete without that. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I said again, rejoice. Rejoice. Friends, if they, had, uh, if they had a reason to rejoice, if they only knew half the story of God's saving power, how much more, how much more, us who know the whole of God's power, the whole of God's saving story, how much more have we reason to uh, to rejoice? And the joy of the Lord was their strength. 
Joy comes because, if you look there, the joy came, why was it? Because they understood. The joy came because they understood. If you read that last, those last couple of verses there, um, verse uh, 12, uh, go with food and celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They understood it. They'd started to grasp the glory and the greatness of the God who was on their side. The joy is, no, is, is because the focus is no longer on ourselves, but on God the Deliverer. Our joy is the sign that we have trusted him to save us. And we have ceased to rely on ourselves. Our joy means that we have come to the edge of the precipice, understood our own hopelessness, and seen that what God has rescued us from. Our joy is in being in the presence of the Almighty God and yet being at peace with Him. It's understanding that we find our joy and our strength in him and in him alone friends the joy of the lord is not some manufactured joy it's not some as i saw on a t-shirt once uh, that you wake up with a smile on your face because you've been sleeping with a coat hanger in your mouth it's not a manufactured joy it's not that sort of fixed smile Yes, I'm joyful, kind of a put on. It's a joy that looks past our present circumstances and focuses on where our hope is. It, our focus is on Jesus, on the one who came to save us. And sometimes it's not easy, friends, to turn our gaze away from ourselves and glance in the loving face of the Saviour. Sometimes we put our heads down and the shampoo goes in our eyes. Some time ago, I was going through a particularly difficult time at work. Uh, we'd been sued for a very large amount of money, um, and the fault wasn't ours, uh, but the solicitors and the trustees were pursuing us uh, for these funds, and I, even on holiday, I would have to be dealing with aggressive emails from solicitors, and I was feeling very low. But I remember in my readings at that time that, that this verse came uh, up and it was the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I thought, well, if this, if this is to mean anything, it's to mean something now. Um, and I can remember, I can remember what, exactly where I was. I was walking down past the cricket ground in, um, in Guildford. There's a little alleyway uh, there that I... I uh, used to go home and at the start of it I was so weighed down with the problems that I was going through and I, I was determined that I was going to praise the Lord and so I started recounting back to God how great he is, how wonderful he is and the blessings that I have um, and by the end of that path, that footpath I was almost skipping um, with joy because I had changed my focus. My focus was no longer on 
the problems that I was going through and that the business was going through, but the, that my focus was on God and how great he was. So understanding this after true repentance, it, it's understanding and laying hold of Christ that we find joy. Um, do you remember those two on the road to Emmaus? And they were, you know, faces downcast because they thought they'd lost all hope. And um, Jesus came alongside them and again helped them to understand the scriptures. Their eyes were opened, it says in Luke 25. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked one another, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with him on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? They're joy was it and they raced back to Jerusalem they ran back to Jerusalem to tell their friends friends let's turn our eyes upon Jesus let's look full in his wonderful face let's let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace there's a guy called uh, Principal Rainey uh, who uh, whom a child once remarked about uh, her that uh, she believed that she went to heaven every night. She was so happy every day. And once used the fine metaphor about Christian joy. She said, joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. And, of course, these words were turned into a popular chorus, which some of you might know. So may the joy of the Lord be your strength. May it be joy that is the flag flown high from the castle of your heart because Jesus, because Jesus is resident there. Amen. Amen.